please stand for the reading of God's word. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill, and a time to heal. A time to break down, and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones, and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace, and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek, and a time to lose, a time to keep, and a time to cast away, a time to tear, and a time to sow, a time to keep silence, and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of men to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better from them to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. This is the word of God. Well, the profound text of Scripture that we just heard is a text which invites us to think about the crucial themes of time and eternity. So that's what we're going to be talking about today, time and eternity. Now, all of human life is shaped by our experience of time. And... As we meditate on this text, we're going to have some cause to celebrate the beauty of our temporal existence. But if we want to start thinking about our experience of time, perhaps a good way to start would be to ask ourselves the question, what do I fret about? So you could ask yourselves, when you're stressed out, what do you get stressed out about? And I would suggest that for probably a lot of us, We're stressing about the past or about the future, and our stress cannot accomplish anything good for us. It's stuff totally outside of our control. We stress about the past for a variety of reasons, 
Perhaps there's something in our past that we want to change. A sin in our past. Something that we've done that was wrong, that we're ashamed of. We wish we could change it. Or perhaps something that somebody has done to us. I know there's plenty of people in this room who have been hurt by other people and perhaps traumatized by other people. And there are things in your past that you wish you could forget them, you wish you could escape them, but they have a way of coming back over and over again. Or, for some of us, there was some golden time in our past and we're nostalgically trying to get back to it. Anybody relate to what I'm talking about? Question, have you ever succeeded at changing your past? No, sir. Have you ever succeeded at getting back to it? No, sir. It doesn't work. Then then there's the future. We tend to spend a lot of time being afraid of what's going to happen in the future or trying to control the future. The future can be scary. Lots of unknowns, lots of uncertainties. And there's people in this room who like to plan really hard to be able to control the future. Now, it's prudent to make plans. I try to go into life with a plan A, plan B, sometimes even a plan C. I know some of y'all got a plan A through Z, and then you come back around again, right? And it's good to, good to plan and contingency plan. I got to see some contingency planners looking back at me. But here's the reality. No matter how much we plan, we can't control the future, can we? So we're these human beings going through time, and we often feel frustrated by it because we live in a fallen world. This world is good. It was created by God, but it's been marred by sin. So in the first couple of chapters of Ecclesiastes, we have seen the sage who's speaking in Ecclesiastes expressing these kinds of frustrations that I'm talking about. And it comes up again. To, to help us get into this text, I want to point out to you four verses. I'm going to dip into four. Two of them will sound familiar if you've been with us for the last few weeks. They're going to be sounding familiar notes. But then we're going to go to two, which introduce something new and hopeful. Doesn't that sound good? So here's two verses that will sound familiar laments about our experience of time. Verse 9, what gain has the worker from his toil? Now that's a question that has been asked several times in the book of Ecclesiastes already in one way or another. And each time the answer comes back in a pretty negative way. If we work hard and if we work with wisdom, we can build things and we can enjoy the fruits of our labor, but not for long. Because time has a way of knocking down what we've built. And if we achieve happiness, it doesn't last. We're happy for a while and then the pleasure diminishes. And as I was reflecting on this this week, I had a scene pop into my head which has been played out innumerable times in my home because I have multiple children. Anybody that has kids or that grew up with brothers and sisters will know what I'm talking about. And here's what it is. An older sibling spends time working with wisdom to create something magnificent out of Legos or blocks, right? You put all the time in the detail, you build it, it's meticulously crafted, and you step away because you've got to go to the restroom or whatever, and who walks in? That's right. <laughs> little bro comes in, or little sister, and sees that tower that you built, and an irrational but irresistible impulse arises in the heart of this toddler to hear the sound of it crashing down, right? So the toddler comes in and bang, knocks that thing over. 
If we were smaller siblings, we did it. And in my house, we got enough kids that people, there's people who have graduated from the Tower Smasher to the Tower Builder. And what happens next is predictable with some variations. There will be sadness, will there not? Mm-hmm. There will possibly be some anger, perhaps some tears, mm-hmm. maybe a little bloodshed, mm-hmm. hopefully followed by repentance and reconciliation. <laughs> but I was thinking about this scene because what Ecclesiastes has been saying in response to this question, what gain has the worker from his toil is basically this. You can work hard and get your education and build your career and secure life, liberty and happiness and whatever you want to. And then time comes like a toddler and knocks it down. And that cycle repeats itself, which is the, the next verse I want you to notice is verse 15. This should sound familiar if you've been with us. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. God seeks what is driven away. It's talking about cycles. The things that happened in the past are going to happen in the future. And in the future, they'll happen again and again and again. There's these cycles of life. And in Ecclesiastes chapter 1 especially, there was this lament. The cycles of life make life sometimes feel meaningless. Every generation of human beings is born, lives, dies, and is forgotten. And the work that we do, we build things and then time knocks them down. And then we build more things in the next generation, and it's true at the level of civilizations. They rise and they fall. All that lament of life in a broken world we've been seeing, but now we've got some hopeful stuff. Who's ready for some hope? Let's go. First little dose of hope shows up here in verse 14. Because in verse 14, we step out of the human situation. Part of the reason Ecclesiastes has been feeling so suffocating is because we've been trying to understand ourselves without reference to God. A lot of the time in Ecclesiastes. But look at verse 14. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. Here's what it's saying. You and I may be limited by time, but God is not limited by time. God is the creator of all things, and as such, he's the Lord of time. He's the Lord of history. He inhabits eternity. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and he never changes. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Everything is from him and through him and to him, so that time doesn't knock down God's tower. What God builds cannot be destroyed. Now, this is already encouraging for us because... Some of you, when I was talking earlier, were getting triggered. You've got stuff in your past that you cannot change, but God can heal it. And you've got stuff in your future that you cannot control, but God's going to be with you in that future. That's right. Not only that, this opens for us the possibility, perhaps, if I learn to live my life in God, by faith in God, this work that I'm doing will not just be wiped out. Perhaps it'll have some eternal significance. And that's... A thought that when we get to the New Testament and hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, we get to take the perhaps away. Because in Jesus Christ, the eternal one has entered history in such a way that if our life gets connected to his life, now we can say with the Apostle Paul what 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says. We've quoted it several times already. It says, therefore, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, because you know that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. That's right. Doesn't mean that we escape from the chaos and frustration of life in a fallen planet, but it does mean that even when our towers get knocked down, God is able to take our little temporal acts and draw them into the eternal story of his redemption. 
That's good news. And then we can go back to verse 11. Here's the fourth of the four verses I told you I want to start with and see some really lovely stuff here in verse 11. Listen to what it says. He, that is God, has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. So there's three claims being made here. One, God has made everything beautiful in his time. Claim two, God has put eternity into every human heart. Talk about what that means. And three, but God has done that in such a way that we cannot figure out what God's doing in the world. I want to take a second to ponder that second one. God has put eternity into the heart of human beings. Now, this, the Hebrew word translated eternity here is difficult for a variety of reasons to translate. But I think that eternity, the word the ESV uses, is a good one because in context... What the verse is saying is this, because we live in a fallen world which has been broken by sin, uh, we are countering all these frustrations in time, but deep down in our hearts, because we're made in the image of God, we know and we long for this eternal reality. We long to be connected to something bigger than ourselves that is not subject to those same frustrations. And we can begin to think about what this means by talking about these two words, which are important for Ecclesiastes, the words meaning and joy. So everybody say meaning. Meaning. Everybody say joy. Joy. What the text is saying is down in our hearts, we're looking for meaning, which transcends these cycles of futility that we see in human history. I could ask you the question, who would like to live a meaningful life? Let's get a show of hands. Anybody want to live a meaningless life? Okay. Eternity is written in our hearts. And then there's this thing about joy or about happiness. What we saw in Ecclesiastes 2 is if you pursue pleasure, if you make that your goal, you might find pleasure. But there's this law of diminishing returns. It makes us happy for a little while. And then the pleasure fades. And if we try and repeat that experience, it's less good next time. And we get frustrated by it. But in our hearts, there's this longing for an enduring joy, for a lasting good that we can cling to and find happiness and peace from God. Now, both of these ideas, our thirst for enduring meaning and our thirst for enduring joy, they lead us again to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because in Jesus Christ, again, we find the eternal one entering history, entering time, dying on the cross for our sins, rising again, promising to return to make all things new. And he says to us that if we'll trust in him, our little story gets connected to his big story in a way that makes our lives meaningful. And he brings us to God, the creator, the only eternal good who can satisfy the thirst of our souls. Now, as we read through the history of Christianity, we discover that many people found God precisely because there was this thirst for something eternal in their souls that led them to God. For example, some of you are familiar with C.S. Lewis. He was a a literary scholar who was an atheist and then eventually became a Christian and a popular writer. And he wrote about his experience like this. This is describing a path that he went on. He says, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in the world can satisfy. You can pause and say, that's what Ecclesiastes has been about so far. We've all got desires that nothing in the world can satisfy. And he says, this is what he came to conclude. The most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it 
to suggest the real thing. And he goes on to say, all of the joys of life are gifts from God that we should receive from thanksgiving. But if we try and find lasting satisfaction there, they disappoint us. And that disappointment is itself a gift which is designed to point us beyond that gift to the giver, to the creator. And the, the more that we come to understand this reality that we're made for something eternal, that doesn't cause us to be complacent about our responsibilities in history. On the contrary, it gives us an urgency to live in time. For example, thinking about Amy Carmichael, she, her relationship with Christ stirred her to uh, end up going to India where she was working among the poorest of the poor. She ended up rescuing people from slavery and uh, taking care of orphans and providing education for many people who wouldn't have had access. But one time she was writing a letter to some of our support, her supporters back home, and she made this statement. She said, we shall have all eternity to celebrate the victories but we have only the few hours before sunset in which to win them. What does she mean? She means, I'm going to be with Christ and enjoy Him forever. Forever. That's my destiny. But I've just got this little temporal season of opportunity to show His goodness to the world by doing as much good as I can. Eternity fills time with urgency and with meaning here. Now, before we leave verse 11, we've got to notice what comes after it and what comes before it. First, let's not forget what comes after it. God put eternity in our hearts, but he did it in such a way that humans cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. In other words, God has eternal purpose, but you don't know what it is. And I don't know what it is, and we can't figure it out. And if you find anybody who explains the meaning for everything that happens, don't believe them. Because nobody but God knows. And for some of us, this could take some pressure off, because some of us are struggling to try and make sense of our lives. And it's not ever going to happen. So you can give up on making sense of your life. But even if you can't make sense of your life, you can still enjoy it. And that's what the first part of the verse is about. Look at this. God has made everything beautiful in its time. We don't understand all the ways in which our story fits into God's big story. But once we relax from trying to change the past or control the future, we are free to receive the gift of God's goodness in the present. I don't think this means that every season of life is good or beautiful in the same way. As a matter of fact, we're about to see, because we live in a fallen world, there's some times in which life is dominated by evil and ugliness. But it does mean that wherever we are in the present, we can receive the gifts of, present, of the present with joy. And even when we're going through great pain and difficulty, God himself, the eternal one, makes his grace and his presence beautifully available through us through that pain. That's right, John Mark. And in the beautiful and in the ugly times, we want to view life in view of God's eternity. That's right. Now, this poem at the beginning of our passage helps us to do that. And I want to look at this poem with a bird's eye view, and then I want to dive into a few of the specific lines. Now, I'm going to read the poem again so you can see it, you can hear it. You can feel the cadence, and I, I would invite you to, you can follow along if you want to, or you can just close your eyes and listen, because this poem is beautiful, and I want you to get it. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted a time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. 
a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Now, there are many things that can be said about this poem, but there are three things that I want to bring to light with regard to this poem. The first point that the poem makes is that life is made of up seasons and down seasons. Up seasons and down seasons. Each line has a pair of words that are opposite from each other. And as we read the poem, it's like we're on a seesaw. It takes us up and down through life. Down and up through life. From birth all the way to death. And if we look down to the poem, what we see is that some seasons are up seasons. They're good. They're beautiful. In the first line, we see birth. Birth is a, a beautiful thing. In the last line, we see peace. This is the Hebrew word shalom. This is a, a good thing. And the reality is that there is beauty in the world, and that is explained by the doctrine of creation. Everyone say creation. Creation. Now, God is a good God, and he created a good world that reflects his goodness in all sorts of beautiful ways. So we see creation revealed in this poem. But the Bible also gives us the reality of the fall. Everyone say the fall. Fall. People sinned against this good God, and the world is broken because of people's sin. We see that also in the first line. Not only do we see birth, but we see death, and death is an ugly thing. In the last line, we not only see peace, but we see war. And war is an ugly thing. Some seasons of our lives will be beautiful up seasons because of God's goodness in creation. And some seasons will be ugly down seasons because of the fall. We can't pick which season we're in. We can't pick which season we're in. So if you're in a down season, don't fret. It's part of life. If you're in an up season, don't anxiously white knuckle that up season so you don't get to a down season. Life has both. First point, up seasons, down seasons. Second point, this poem alerts us to the fact that our lives are lived as both individuals and communities. Some of you have been celebrating New marriage in this season. Some of you have been celebrating new babies in this season. Some of you have gotten new jobs in this season. While the community and the entire world is going through a pandemic, there can be laughing and mourning in the same season. And how to live in the interplay between our individual life and our corporate life can be difficult. This poem doesn't give us specific answers on how to live wisely in that interplay. But we should remember that our individual lives are never fully separated from our corporate collective life. So we should live in light of the larger community. So first point, we have ups and downs. Second, we're individuals part of a collective. And third point is that this poem forces us 
to face the question, how will we walk with God through each season of life? How will I walk through the up seasons? How will I walk through the down seasons? How will I walk as an individual? How will I walk as a member of the community? Now, for some of us, it's easy to trust God in the up seasons. When your work is profitable, when you're celebrating, it's easy to trust God and walk with him. For others of us, it's the opposite. If we're in a season of pain or mourning or loss, it's easier to cry to God and come to him. But regardless of which it is, what I want to ask you is, will you walk with God through every season of life? Will you walk with God through every season of life? I want to be real. 2020 is crazy. Mm. For some of you, COVID-19 has rocked your faith. For some of you, the racial turmoil of the summer has rocked your faith. Mm -hmm. Now, I want to urge you in as gentle and as loving a way as possible to walk with God through this season of your life. God wants you to know him, and God wants to form you more into the image of his son. So embrace God in the season. You know, as I was thinking about this idea of embracing God even in the downs, I started thinking about my experience. October 15, 2001 is a significant date in my life. Because on October 15, 2001, I was a sophomore at the University of Oklahoma. I was 19 years old. My mom passed away from, with ovarian cancer. And I went, the day I got the phone call, I drove home. Actually, a professor at OU drove my sister and I home. And we spent a week at home. And we went through the whole funeral ceremonies and all that stuff. And we came back to OU and had to get back into the rhythm of class. And I remember specifically, I missed a chemistry lab section. So I was waiting for the next one. I was sitting in the South Oval. If you've been on campus, you know where that is. On a bench underneath a big tree. And a buddy of mine rides up on his bike. And he goes, what's up, man? How you doing? And this is a friend I could really be real with. And I was like, not well, dude. Like, my mom passed away last week. Now, this guy understands seasons of grief because his mom had been murdered a few years before. And here's what he told me. He said, I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to pray that God teaches you how to grieve. And he said, you have an opportunity to know God in a way that very few people know him. You get to know him as he comforts you in the loss of your mother. He knew something about that. And he was able to encourage me that in every season of life is an opportunity, in the up seasons and the down seasons, it's an opportunity to cling to Jesus and to get to know him in a powerful way. Now, it's not just my buddy that can give me that example. Actually, it's Jesus who gives us the perfect example of what it looks like to walk with God in every season of life. Because in Jesus, what we see is 
when we read the Gospels and we see Jesus being, going out in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, he doesn't fret about that temptation because he knows he walks with God. When he's on a mountain and he is teaching his disciples, he can experience joy to the fullest in training his people because he knows he walks with God. He knows that when his family tells him, you've got to go to Jerusalem, man, because your name depends on it. Your reputation is at stake. He can say, I'm not going to Jerusalem right now because I'm walking with God. I get my identity from him, not from those people. And when his disciples tell him, you, gotta go, you can't go to Jerusalem right now because you're going to be killed when you get there. He can set his face like flint and he can go there knowing it means death because he's walking with God. See, what Jesus teaches us is that in every season, the up seasons and the down seasons, there's an opportunity to know God in a different way. So I want to ask you, in the midst of all the chaos or the beauty that you're facing right now, will you walk with God in this season? Wow. I'm supposed to talk right now, but I feel like we should just soak in that for a second. I know there's some people in this room that it's been really hard and grief has wrecked you but I want you to hear this word that Chauncey spoke not in a trite way but from the depth of his experience is that God has entered into the pain with you and he will walk with you through this season and he can bring you out of it so Chauncey's been giving us the big view of this poem And now we're going to zoom in just to look at a couple of the details before we run out of time. Would you look with me at verse 8? Verse 8 says this, A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. Now we go here because this is one of the verses in this poem that is a little difficult for us to think about as Christians. But if we think about it, I think it can help us gain wisdom for how to follow Jesus. As Christians, we're more comfortable with the words love and peace than the other two words. As humans, we ought to be more comfortable with them, right? right. We don't like war. We don't like hate. As Christians, we like the words love and we like the words peace because Jesus taught us to love God. Jesus taught us to love our neighbors as ourselves, to love one another as he loved us and gave his life for us on the cross. Jesus taught us even to love our enemies, to love everybody across every boundary. In Christ, we see that God is love, the Father eternally loving the Son and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. That's God, the Holy Trinity. And Jesus said to us, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God in Matthew 5, 9. What about hate? What about war? Now, the first thing this poem alerts us to is we may want to talk about love and peace, and we may want to practice those, but hate and war might find us anyway. So if we find ourselves in situations in which we're surrounded by conflict and hatred and difficulty, are we going to learn to walk with Jesus Christ through that season? The other thing it might cause us to do is ask a question, is there a place for that emotion, that feeling called hate in the Christian life? Is there a place for war? Got a couple verses for you. Proverbs 8, 13 says, The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance in the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. 
The fear of the Lord. Ecclesiastes just told us that's what we need to learn. How do we worship God? How do we live a God-centered life? And what Proverbs 8.13 just said is one of the marks is hatred of evil. Does that mean hating people who do bad things? Thanks be to God. He hates evil, but he loves people who do bad things. Right. God showed his love for us in this way. While we we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. Right. But there is a hatred of evil, which is real. Or we could go to Amos chapter 5, verse 15. In context, God is speaking through the prophet Amos, warning them of God's coming judgment because they are people who are pious. They worship God, and yet they practice injustice. They exploit the vulnerable in their community. And Amos is calling them to repentance And in Amos 5.15, he says this, Hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. What, What am I saying right here? I'm saying the poem alerts us to the fact that in life we long for and we pray for seasons in which it's all about caring for one another and loving and celebration. But there may be times where we find ourselves on the evil day, confronted with evil and injustice. And in those moments, loving God and loving people does not mean being complacent with the way things are. It means hating evil and fighting for goodness and truth. Or we could talk about this word war. Actually, the New Testament repeatedly uses the theme of war to describe the whole Christian life, doesn't it? Ephesians 6 verse 12 says this, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. What does that mean? It means we don't fight against people. We fight for people. But there's a spiritual conflict with invisible evil forces in the world that we need to fight with the word of God and prayer and the power of the gospel. Or we can look at 1 Timothy 6.12, which says simply, Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In other words, the texts are saying, when Jesus comes back and makes all things new, we will enjoy perfect peace and rest forever. But until then, to be a, a disciple of Jesus Christ on planet Earth involves having a certain wartime mentality. And we can just step back and take this super literally on a surface level and say it would be naive, given the history of the world and the United States of America and the reality of the geopolitical situation right now, if we presumed that war, like actual war between nations, wouldn't land on our doorstep in our lifetime. I pray that it does not. I encourage you to do the same. But there haven't been very many generations who didn't have that experience. And if the day of evil comes and we find ourselves there, it's causing us to ask the question, will I trust in Christ and have his peace in my heart and live in a way way that bears witness to his peaceable kingdom of love even when the day of evil comes? I want to look at verse 4, which says, A time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. There is a season for weeping, friends. There's a season for sadness. There's a season for lament. Like John Mark just said, if we look around at the world like it is, then there's a reason to weep. Recently, I came across a verse in Second Chronicles that struck me. It's in chapter 35, verse 25. Now, the context for this is we have a good king named Josiah who dies. And what chapter 35, verse 25 of Second Chronicles says is, Jeremiah also uttered a lament 
for Josiah. That's the king who died. And all the singing men and singing women have spoken of Josiah in their laments to this day. They made these a rule in Israel. Behold, they are written in the laments. So the prophet Jeremiah laments the death of good king Josiah. And all these songwriters come together to write these sad songs lamenting this death. And what the text says is that they made these a rule in Israel. They made them a rule. The people were required to recall the sadness of the death of that good king in generations to come. See, family, lament is a part of our discipleship. We have to take time to grieve what is lost and what is broken. It's a way of assessing the damage. It's a way of recognizing that the world isn't as it ought to be. We should weep over our sin. We should weep over the brokenness in relationships. We weep over the brokenness in the world. What we find in lament is the reminder that only God can truly transform a desert into a place of springs. And it's from that place of hope in God that we can then do creative good in response to what is broken. That's right. So we need seasons of, of weeping and we need seasons of mourning. Now, I want to, I think this is a moment to go a little deeper into this idea of weeping because Romans twelve fifteen tells us to weep with those who weep. Now, that may seem easy when people are weeping about stuff that, that we think is worth weeping about. Mm-hmm. But I would say that in our context, in a church that's as diverse as we are, that sometimes there are people who are going to be weeping about something that we don't agree they should be weeping about. So the question then is, do I weep or do I laugh? And what Paul and the Holy Spirit tell us is to weep with those who weep. So what does that look like? Well, if we look at the life of Jesus again, we see this played out. John 11, Jesus' best friend dies. Lazarus dies in the tomb. Jesus shows up. Lazarus' two sisters, Mary and Martha, come to Jesus. And what does he say to them? He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus knows death has no place with him. Death cannot survive with him. He is the source of all life. And yet, a few verses later, what we see Jesus doing is weeping at the tomb of his friend. He is the resurrection and the life who is grieving at the tomb of his friend. Mm -hmm. Can he bring Lazarus from the dead? Absolutely. He's about to do it. Mm -hmm. But yet, he still weeps. He enters into their pain and grieves with them. So there are seasons in which the love of Christ compels us. To weep even when it's not our natural tendency to weep. Because it's weeping in love with other people. So individually and collectively, he calls us to weep. We don't stop it with weeping. Because some seasons are seasons of raucous celebration and laughter and dancing. We consider all the pain in the world. We might be tempted to spend all of our time weeping and mourning. But there are seasons to roll on the floor with delight. To dance even when everybody's watching. I enjoy that. Yeah, Uh, and we don't have to feel guilty about it. 
Celebration is a gift from God. In fact, celebration is commanded by God. Celebration, laughter, dancing is the antidote to the world's pill that would say, only celebrate when you're numb to the world. Mm. But what our theology says, what Jesus says, is that there's so much beauty in the world. There's babies rolling over for the first time. There's marriages happening. There's graduations. There's recovery from addictions. And we've got to take the time to celebrate. That's right. And in Christ, we are confident that even that God will even work every down season for our good purpose, and that one day there will be no down season for us, so we celebrate now as a sign of our future hope that's coming. Amen. So whether we're weeping or whether we're laughing, whether we're mourning or whether we're dancing, we walk with God in every season. That's right. Well, church family, we could spend all day digging into every version of this poem, probably tomorrow too. Might stay till Wednesday. We don't have time for all of that, but taking time to get into the poem a little bit now prepares us to step out for a second. We're almost done. But look with me at verses 12 and 13 before we finish. Because we've been saying that this is a text which is here to teach us about time and eternity. And it shows us that within the vicissitudes of time, we're not going to find that which brings us lasting satisfaction. So we need to look to God. But God came to us in time so that we could find him. And now there's this question, okay, so if we're made for eternity, how do we live in Time, and the poem's been helping us think about it, but look at what verses 12 and 13 say. It's glorious. It says, I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful. I told, I told you, some of y'all still think this is a depressing book, but I told you this is a book about joy. Everybody say joy. Joy. I, I perceived that there's nothing better for them to do than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that Everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. Why? This is God's gift to man. God's gift. Because God's grace is always bigger than the brokenness of the world. That's what it's saying. I just want to take a second to zoom in on these phrases. Just pause. First, the one, be joyful. Be joyful. Be joyful. Christian joy is an act of resistance that says evil doesn't get the last word. It's an act of defiance. It says the brokenness of the current age is not the deepest reality. God is the deepest reality. So rejoice. And then look what it says. Eat and drink. Enjoy eating and drinking. Now some of us have a tendency to do one of the most annoying things that Christians can do, which is try to be more spiritual than God. <laughs> Don't do that. Listen, God made everything. God made everything, including food and drink. So don't just enjoy the spiritual blessings. Enjoy all the blessings of God. Whenever his goodness comes to you in big ways and small ways, simple ways, material ways, give thanks to God. The text then says this, take pleasure in all his toil. Now, Ecclesiastes is not romanticizing work. Ecclesiastes acknowledges, first of all, that work is always, or not always, but often exhausting and frustrating. Anybody want to say amen to that? Mm -hmm. And sometimes you work really hard to build something and toddler time comes and knocks it down. But here's what it's saying right now. Once you know the God of eternity and once you recognize your place within time, there's this freedom to trust the results to God. And then whatever your daily work is, to do it and recognize that's an expression of your sacred dignity as a person made in the image of the creator. That's right. And thus it can be an act of worship. So some of you tomorrow are going to 
go to work and you're going to stack boxes and orderly rows in a warehouse so that people can have shipped out to them the things that they need. Others of you are going to go to work and you're going to be diagnosing sick people and prescribing medicine. Other people are going to be mopping a floor in a school or teaching a lesson in a school. Some people are going to be staying at home, taking care of little kids. What all of these have in common is that they are about cultivating God's shalom in a world that uh, has so much chaos and brokenness in it, which means all of them are a reflection of your identity as the one made in the image of God who brings beauty from ashes and peace from chaos. So it's saying when you go into your work, just learn to enjoy it and celebrate it and embrace that work as an act of worship. And then finally, look at this phrase, do good as long as they live. Somebody say, do good. Do good. See, what this text is doing is freeing us from the exhausting illusion that we are in control. You can't change your past or get back to it. You can't change your future. God's going to take care of that. And what that does is free you up to do what? Love somebody. Create something beautiful. Serve someone vulnerable. Share the gospel of Jesus Christ all the time, everywhere with everybody. Speak a word of encouragement. You can do that before you leave church today. Encourage somebody. Listen to somebody who needs somebody to listen sympathetically. Seek justice. Sing a song. Write a song if you've got it in you. Make some disciples. Teach the Bible. Mentor a kid. Hundreds of kids in our communities that desperately need a mentor can make a huge difference in their lives. Give money to a great nonprofit that makes our community stronger. Start a business that's going to provide good work for people who desperately need it in our community. Stick up for somebody who's getting picked on. Make peace in the midst of conflict. Some of you guys, you have family conflict, you have conflict going on in your work, and you just got to do the hard thing like Jesus did, which is to go get in the middle of it and speak peace, which means you're going to catch blows from both sides, but you do it anyway because the results are in the hands of God. Forgive somebody. If you're here and there's bitterness in your soul, friends, it's a sickness to the soul. If there's somebody that you're angry at that you haven't forgiven, come lay that bitterness at the feet of the cross today. Do good. Go ask somebody for forgiveness. You could keep going with your own list, but what I'm trying to say is do good as long as you live. And you don't have to stress out about the results because the results are in the hands of God. And the promise of the gospel is that none of your labor will be in vain because every effort, little effort to do good and to love, God's going to gather up into his eternal purpose to make all things new. That's right. So we walk with God in every season. We do good as often as we can. And what this, this passage reminds me of, and I think what, this, what, what the whole Bible would show us is that God loves you so much that he entered into the ugliness of our time to bring you into the beauty of his eternity. Amen. That's right. He entered into the ugliness of our time to bring us into the beauty of his eternity. I want to walk back through some of this poem because I think we see this. Look at verse 2. Jesus died. So you could be born again. That's right. Jesus was plucked up so that we could be planted in the family of God. Jesus was killed so you and I could be healed. Mm -hmm. 
Jesus was broken down so you and I could be built up. Jesus wept in the garden so you and I can laugh in the new heavens and the new earth. Jesus is the stone that was cast away so you and I could be gathered and built up into a dwelling place for the Lord. Jesus was betrayed so you and I could be embraced. Jesus' body was torn apart so you and I could be mended into the tapestry of God's redemption. This is the truth, friends. We could go on through this whole poem. What we see is that in the cross of Jesus, God takes our ugly and gives us his beauty. Amen. So if you're here today and you don't know Jesus and you would say that I've been trying to control my, my life. What I would say is surrender to Jesus. Amen. He's sovereign. He knows the future. He knows your past. He made you to trust him. Turn from your sin, be baptized. Trust him. If you're here today and you know Jesus and you would say that you've been trying to control your life. Open your palms. Surrender to Jesus. Open your hands that have your desires, your dreams, your aspirations, your career. Trust him. Turn from whatever smaller hopes you have and trust him. Today, receive his body and his blood as your sustaining grace as you come to the Lord's table. Jesus holds time and eternity in his hands so we can trust him. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you so much for your word that is, it teaches us so much about who you are, and yet there's so much we still have yet to learn. And that means there's so much more of your love we have yet to dive into. God, thank you for Jesus who died and rose again to give us hope, to give us life, to redeem every season, the, up and, the ups and the downs. I pray that we would encounter you in every one. Lord, as we go to the Lord's table now, we want to renew to you our commitment to Jesus. Say we trust you and you alone as our hope. We trust you and you alone as our sufficiency. We are sustained only by you. God, thank you for your word. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.